Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast for water treaters by water treaters, where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. Hi, folks. Trace Blackmore here, your host for Scaling Up, and I am so excited. We are welcoming Kevin Cope back. Kevin Cope was so gracious to teach us all about wastewater systems, and it was just so much information. We couldn't pack it in just one show. We have it in two shows, and folks, I don't want to keep going on so you have to wait any longer. Please welcome Kevin Cope back for part two of our wastewater series. My returning lab partner is Kevin Cope of Brintag North America. And folks, I know you're tuning in because last week you heard the best definition possible of what you can expect to see in a wastewater plant. Well, today Kevin is back and he's going to share with us what a water treatment professional needs to do during the survey process. Are you ready for this, Kevin? I am. I'm definitely ready. All right, so why don't you just take it from there? You did a great job explaining all the equipment, so we've all visually toured the plant. Now we're coming out with our brain and we're putting our brain to what we learned last week and how do we help the customer? How do we solve problems? How do we even begin to know what the problems are? Well, that's been a great way to start. We already understand now the potential pieces of equipment that someone could see when they go to a typical waste treatment plant. We've already asked the questions on what are you trying to do? We're trying to decrease uh, uh, sludge dewatering, uh, meet discharge limits, or you know, reduce costs. We already, already know that. So now we walk through the plant. The first thing we want to do when we walk through a plant, any plant, is collect as much data as possible. I love to, I'm, I'm a, as you guys all know, I'm an artist, so I always draw the plant you know, one place at a time. I'm not real good at reading the uh, engineering diagrams. It's better if I can draw circles and clarifier and things along this line. Um, I also, when I'm walking through the plant, I look for sampling points. Where do I get samples? What samples can I take here? How are you treating this? You know, I, I reiterate the issues. A lot of times I'll ask the operators too about issues they're having, not just necessarily what you know, the contact has said. You know, what are other issues you're having? Well, we're having issues making this polymer down. It just doesn't go into solution very well. Or, you know, these pumps just, we're constantly losing prime on these pumps, whatever the case may be. So I'll also, when I'm do, touring a plant, I'll ask, you know, not, not only will I know the issues that the decision maker is trying to, to achieve, meet discharge limits, I'll ask the operators. Um, because, you know, one of the things that's going to come up and, you know, it's going to come up here in a, in a bit on a discussion is, have my treatments ever been sabotaged? Well, they have, but if you start working with the, with the operators and really get to know these guys and, and, and women, whoever the case may be, get to know them, you know, you start understanding what their concerns are and why they like the, maybe the company that's in there or, or what the company in there isn't doing and, and really focus a little bit on that. So once you've determined the issues and, and you know, you've walked through the plant, now you're going to run some jar, jar tests. And this, <laughs> I, I still like the gangster. It, you get your gangster out, according to Trace, and you, you, you start to run some tests with your gangster. All right. Again, I was like 10 years old in my defense. <laughs> my father was introducing equipment. I had no idea what it was being used for, and I thought he said gangster. No, listen, I, I think it's great. I, I, as you know, I steal from people, so I'm going to use that the next waste, wastewater training class. Um, you know, the first thing you want to do is verify the current program. Does the program work in the jars like it works in the system? You know, what are the differences? Are the sludge, is this flock bigger in the jars or smaller in the jars? 
that they settle faster. So you really want to verify the current program and its effectiveness and understand exactly what that program is doing and what it isn't doing. You know, it, it isn't meeting discharge limits or it's not kick, picking up all the pin flock. Whatever the case may be, you already know this, but in your jars, you kind of want to verify that to see how, you know, what it's doing. And then once you know that, then you want to verify what your program can do to make it better. How can your program... So, Kevin, the starting point, is that always the current program? Is that where you want to start? Typically, for me, it is. I mean, a lot of times, they won't give you the polymer from the competitor to run your test. But if they do, I always like to run that first, just so I can visually look at what they're doing. If they won't, and in many cases, they won't, then you just start out running the jar test, looking, again, always remembering in the back of your mind, you know, we're trying to meet lead or we're trying to get better settling. What am I trying to do? You know, so ideally it's nice to run the competitor's program first. If that's impossible, jar test with in mind, what are you trying to achieve? You know, am I trying to reduce sludge? Can I go from an inorganic coagulant to an organic coagulant to reduce sludge? Is that something that's possible? So when you're doing your tests, if you can't run the competitor's program, remember what you're trying to do. What am I trying to improve? The issue I always have is there's so many variables involved. So I try to come up with a process, and I don't think I've ever have come up with a process I like. So I ask you this question. What is your process at this step to make sure you cut out some of the variables so you're working towards a solution faster? Well, my, the way I like to do it, I, I've always liked to do this, and I, I, I talked about this on the very first one we did for Industrial Water Week. I like to go out and physically sample and look at what's happening in the plant. What does the flock look like? What does the settling look like? And, if, and again, now with the new digital cameras, you can do, listen to me, you can take pictures and get a, a sense on how fast it's settling, even take a little video. I like that process. I think those cameras have been out for 20 plus years now, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess you're right there. My, my kids will listen to this and tease me about it. But, but I, I really like doing that. I really like to visually look at what they're doing. You know, what, what is happening? And then my process, and, and, I, and I wrote a paper on how I do my jar testing, and I do my jar testing the same way every time. You know, I start out with the coagulants, the primary chemistries for coagulants, and I zero in on those. And then, and well, let's step back. If you're doing precipitation, I look at the best way to precipitate. How's the best way to precipitate nickel? How's the best way to precipitate phosphate? Whatever the case may be, that's the first step. Second step then is coagulation. I go through the exact same chemicals every time. I start with the organic chemicals, then I go to the inorganic chemicals, coagulants. Then I go to flocculants. I look at a charge. I look at the different charges, which is the best charge. Then I work to best charge density and best molecular weight. I do it the same way every time. And everybody has their own way of doing it. I'm not saying mine's right. This is what works for me. But when I'm doing my tests, I always try to visualize what does it look like in the plant? Did it settle very quickly? Did it settle slowly? I want to, I want to mimic that or be better than that, or improve on what they're trying to do. We're not getting enough, we're not getting enough nickel out of the plant. So now I go back and I look, is it a precipitation problem 
or is it a, a coagulation problem, flocculation problem? And so I, I'm a big fan of when I'm running my jar test, I'll go out after I run a jar and go out and physically look at the plant. I mean, that's nice if you can be at the plant doing a test there. If you can't, when you're touring the plant, look at how quickly flock occurs, how big the flock is, you know, how wet is the sludge. Look at all these things to get a handle on when you go back to do your jar test. How do I improve on that? I don't know if that, if that answers, but that's kind of the way I've, I've done it and I've always done it. I think it's a great way to answer it. And I think the bottom line is, is you, the individual, have to come up with a method and you need to stick to that method. Otherwise, you're going to be all over the map and chasing your tail. Yeah, and that's that's really comes to, to, to a great point is too often, listen, I'm as guilty of it as the next person. Something starts to work and you get excited. You know what I mean? You're just like, wow, this is great. Or, you know, and, and, and you vary from what you typically do. And I always try to pull myself back and say, no, go through your steps, do it properly, go the right way about doing it. And then, and then you just feel better that you, you, you've actually accomplished something. It's hard. I, I got to be the first to admit it. When, when I started doing a lot of, uh, my, my specialty is really removing oil from water. I absolutely love to be involved with removing oil from water. Just, just I find it fascinating. And when I first started and I started seeing some trends and things along this line, I would just get so excited that I would just like quit and wait to, to add the next chemical to see what happened. But I, I eventually I realized, no, I've got to settle myself down. I've got to do it the same way every time. So now that when I feel when I'm done, I feel very confident that I can verify exactly what I did. And, and, and it's hard, I, especially when things are going really well, you know, and, or conversely, when things are going really poorly, you're constantly, uh, let's try this, let's try this. But if you, if you come up with a mechanism that works for you, or a procedure that works for you, I think that's the, the key to really becoming, you know, a, a, you know a, a person that can be very valuable in a waste treatment plant. But again, I, I... And Kevin, I got to underscore that. For the people out there listening in the Scaling Up Nation that have done wastewater, they are all nodding their heads. I can see them from here and saying, yes, absolutely. You have to make sure you follow through that procedure because you might have only gotten it to one point, but because you went further, you've wasted a lot of time. And then you had to back up to that point and duplicate all your efforts. So for the new folks out there, I think that's the biggest piece of advice that you can start right from the start with is to make sure you always follow those procedures and you make sure you get it right before you move on to the next step. I can't tell you how much time I've wasted because I get excited too. Well, you know, Rick, um, you know, I, I, I do the waste treatment plant or uh, training with Steve Winter, Rick Brusk, and Dave um, uh, Ritz. And each one of us have a little different way of doing it. And the, some of them are very subtle, some are very dramatic, but it works for all of it. it just because I like the way I do mine doesn't mean that that's the way for you. Um, and so we, we, it, we all kind of, you know, we joke around a little bit about this, but we all have a little slightly different way of doing it. But for the most part, it's a procedure that we feel very comfortable with when we're doing our testing. And therefore, we feel very comfortable when we come to the end that what we have done is correct. Okay. And again, it's slightly different, but find your own way of doing it and then stick with it. You know, as long as it's correct, you know what I mean? But, you know, find your own way, the way you feel most comfortable with, 
you know, and, and do it that way every time. I mean, that's just, that's something. And again, that's me. I mean, so that's the way I've done it. And for the most part, I see Steve and, and uh, Dave and uh, Rick doing it their way, but the same way every time. So. Kevin, if you don't mind, I'm going to take a little tangent for a second. And the the people that you just mentioned, including yourself, do the Association of Water Technologies wastewater training. And you guys do that for a fee of zero to the AWT. And one of the reasons that I started this podcast was I wanted to raise the bar in the in, in the industrial water treatment industry, and now it's gone to the entire water treatment industry, but you guys are doing that with wastewater, and I know there's so many people out there that don't realize that. So I wanna take this opportunity, since I'm talking to you, to thank you for raising the bar in the water treatment industry. Well, thank you. I think I can speak for the other three, Dave and uh, Steve and Rick. We just really enjoy it. I mean, we enjoy, the four of us enjoy getting together. We enjoy seeing the challenges that we put forth every time. We enjoy working with the people, whether it being veterans or being new people. We just really have a good time. And we, we jokingly say, you know, at our class, and you know we do this, we always tease, you know, you guys who are doing a boiler cooling water class to say, hey, you're having, we're having a lot more fun over in the wastewater. But we just have a really good time doing it. And, it, and it's so rewarding, I, you know, for all of us to see, you know, people will call us after class and say, hey, how do we do this? How do we do that? And again, it's it we get back more than we put in, I, at least I do. And uh, it's just it's I appreciate the comments, but it just it's just a lot of fun. And I I really look forward to seeing those three guys. You know, when we get to see each other, you know, uh, every other year. It looks like it's going to be start being every year now, but just really enjoy seeing them and really enjoy you know, when the class is over, you know, all the comments and, and the people we get to meet. So thank you. But it's, it's been a great time. It's been a great time. Well, you guys do a great job, but let's get back to our issue at hand. So now we're in the jar testing part of our process. Where do we go from here? Well, let's say, let's say when jar testing is over and we've come up with a program, we feel very confident. We go into the customer, we explain, you know, here's what our program can do compared to what you're doing now. Or here's how we, and that said, let me also recommend that you can also jar test your own accounts. You know, jar test your own accounts and say, hey, here's what we're doing right now. I think we can improve by doing this. So I don't want this to always seem it's like, you know, you're going in and competing with someone. You can also be competing with yourself. How do I improve this? Because your competition is always looking, how can I improve what you're doing? So think of that also, that you can jar test periodically to say, how can I make my program better? So be clear there. Let's say we figured out a way to make the program better, be it the competitors or be it yours. The next thing you'd want to do is present this to the customer and explain to them why your program is better. Where will they benefit? What will, what will happen? You know, we're going to change this precipitant. It is more effective on, on zinc than it is than the one you're using now. So I, I recommend let's change this precipitant. And then present that to the customer in a, in a very timely, very well-organized manner, and then ask for, you know, basically ask for a trial. And you're, it's, let's just for the sake of this discussion, you're granted a trial. You know, you want to make sure you bring the appropriate amount of chemical in. You want to make sure you bring the right product in. You want to make sure you understand what the feed systems are. Do you have to bring in feed systems? Can you use the feed systems that are in there now? If you're going to use the feed systems in there now, make sure they're cleaned out. I'm, I had one problem where somebody did not clean out a tank properly, 
and we brought an organic chemical in on top of an inorganic, and it turned into gel. And we had a mess. And needless to say, we didn't get that business. But, you know, you, 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 <laughs> I, I won't take responsibility for that one. But bottom, bottom line is you got to clean the equipment out. So, you know, really understand, clean the lines out, flush the lines out. Um, you know, that's a key to making sure your trial is successful, making sure you cover every little part of what can happen. Um, again, the equipment is always a big issue. Is it their equipment or are you bringing your equipment in? Or is it the competitor's equipment? If the competitor's equipment, then you've got to figure out a way to get your own equipment in there. Um, so, but then once that starts, once the trial starts, again, I'm big on sampling, looking at it. How is it settling? What is it doing? And, and you know, don't get too excited initially that it's really working well or too excited that it's not working. Because a lot of times it takes longer than what you think it's going to take to get your chemical through the plant, all right? Too often I've seen the place look terrible, and you're like, oh, boy, this is not going well. And then all of a sudden it gets really good, or vice versa. It looks phenomenal, and then it gets, then it, you know, it doesn't look too hot. So give it ample time. Kevin, let me ask you a question. So one of the issues that I've always had is when we're starting a new program, you know, I'm always waiting to see, okay, has it made it all the way back? Is there a better way to figure out what that rate is? I've always struggled with that. Ironically, one of our guys just gave me, I'm working on the, the, uh, the app with the AWT app. We're trying to get some wastewater calculations in the AWT app. And one of our, one of my guys, a guy named Jim Collins, uh, he spoke at the last uh, conference. He has some calculations that he uses to figure out how long it takes from entrance to a plant to discharge from a plant before when you start seeing your program. And um, I did some gross calculations when I was in the field where I do flow in and try to calculate the volumes and then flow out to get an idea. It was close. I, I, to be honest with you, Trace, I've not really looked hard at Jim's calculations. I just got them last week and just haven't had time. But there are calculations, and, and, and hopefully that will eventually get onto the AWT app. But there are calculations that you can come up with a ballpark idea on how long it's going to take. Mine were, when I used mine, they were okay. They weren't great. And I haven't had a real chance to look at Jim's. But there are basic calculations that you can go through to figure out potentially how long it will be from point A, the beginning of the plant, till it's till at least. Yeah, well, as you know, I'm the math guy, so I'm always looking for, you know, that perfect calculation. And I've got some that will get you in the ballpark, too. But then when I hit that time and nothing's changed, I get disappointed. And I haven't found something that hits it every time. The one thing I'm terrible at, terrible, is the size of things. I can't tell if a clarifier is 25 gallons or 2.5 million gallons. I mean, that's how far off I can be. So when it comes to those, it is, listen, yeah, that's the one thing bad, to me is I know things I can't do and sizing things is something I just flat out can't do. And, and so when I do my, when I do my old calculations, I'd always miss, but let me look at Jim's and like I said, I just haven't had a chance to really look at his, but he had, he had shared some with me and I haven't had a chance to look at it, but there are calculations that you can come up with um, that can give you a ballpark idea. Is it six hours? Is it three days? Is it 20 minutes? Whatever the case may be. Uh, but I've, Personally, never had a lot of success with that, but that has more to do with my inability to really know how big something is. I'm, I'm a whiz with math, but when it comes to looking at visualizing how big something is, I'm not real good at that. I'm not real good at that. 
All right. Well, that was just a little aside for my benefit. Hopefully the nation enjoyed that, that dialogue. So uh, getting back to the actual field trial. So now we finally have our product that's in the system. It's in there long enough and we can actually see the result of what we are doing, what we get credit for. Now what? Well, firstly, we want to make sure that we sampled prior to our program starting. We want to make sure we sample whatever the case may be. If we're trying to reduce sludge, how many truckloads a day are they taking out or how many truckloads a week are they taking out? If they're trying to meet a discharge limit for chrome, whatever the case may be, what are their chrome numbers? How often are they not making their chrome limits? Is it once a month? Is it once a day? Whatever the case may be, know those numbers going in. Then once you know those numbers, then you start testing your numbers accordingly. We've gone from a truckload a day to a truckload every three days. We've taken chrome from uh, one part per million down to uh, three quarters of a part per million. Whatever the case may be, know what those numbers are and have the customer agree with those numbers. Okay? Agree with those numbers so that they feel very comfortable that, yes, we are taking out a truckload of sludge a day. That is an agreed upon number. Now we're taking one out every three days. So get those numbers, get them agreed upon. Then one, again, you, so now you start your trial and you're actually able to meet or exceed what they're doing. Okay. So the key is have agreed upon numbers before you start, because if you don't, then it's all over the place. And then, then start your trial, take your samples, know where you're going to send the samples to. If you need to have analytical work done, make sure you have the correct lab or a lab set up for those samples. Make sure they can run what you need to run. Also, the other thing potentially to do is get the samples prior, send them to your lab so your lab runs them, so you're comparing apples and apples. So make sure you have your data in place prior to starting your trial with what they're doing now. Kevin, one of the issues that I found is that how they test the actual analyte that they're looking for is different. And somebody might test it as a certain species where the other lab might not test it as the same species. Can you speak to that? A little bit on that. That's not really been my, I've not seen much of that. Um, again, I think that you, but I can, I get it. So therefore you'd want to use the same lab, potentially the same lab, or use your lab and do it the same way. So either that, that I've seen, I've not seen that a lot, but again, we're back to, you know, keeping things as consistent as possible. You know, we're using the same lab with, with what's going on now. We're going to use the same lab with ours or whatever the case may be. And worst case scenario, if you're, if you're using two or more labs, you have to make sure that they're at least reporting the same way. Exactly. But again, make sure you have those numbers going in because if you don't have those numbers going in, it's an uphill battle to convince someone that you've done better. Thinking back about issues that I have, they probably all would have been solved if I took your advice that you just gave. Well, I, listen, I wish I could say I did it every time, Trace. But, you know, I mean, I mean you know, this comes, you know, things you learn, you know, you learn in the, you learn in the industry. Know what your parameters are going in and agreed upon parameters. And I mean, look, I've had places where I've had agreed upon parameters. I've met or exceeded the parameters and those weren't the right parameters, even though I had them agreed upon. So these things happen, but it's, you always feel better if you know what you're trying to meet. And so that's, that's a key for a successful trial. Kevin, what are some other things that we need to consider when we're doing field trials? Well, the one thing you know, that I know that has come up is how long? How long do you run a trial? Well, you run a trial based on what the customer's needs are. 
Um, I've had trials that the customer has shut it down before it even got started because we drill in, ironically, it was in Mexico, it wasn't in the States. But you really want to make sure you run a trial long enough to verify what you're doing. If it's a plant that has a lot of changes, you want to make sure your trial is run through all those changes, not just for a day, maybe for a month, for a week. So saying how long really is based more on what the customer is trying to achieve. And to give a, give a hard, cold answer for that is very difficult. So work with the customer to get how long a trial. You know, if it's a batch, maybe run one or two batches. If it's continuous, make sure you hit every one of the potential changes they can have in their plant during that trial period. And so now you've done that and you've had, you know, you've generated some successful numbers and successful results. You know, you need to talk with the customer and show them in a very professional manner what we were able to do. You know, during the month of May, uh, uh, month of May, you exceeded your phosphate limit seven times. We started uh, June 1st, and from June 1st to June 30th, we did not exceed phosphate ever. We were always below it. And therefore, I recommend we continue with our program. So whatever the case may be, you always want to show, here's what we agreed on, here's how we bettered that, and then ask to continue your program. Um, that's, a, that, that's a key. You also want to make sure that you know what, the, what the, the chemistry that's currently in there, how much do they have, how much do they need to, to go through before that's up to where your program can be put in place permanently. I should have maybe mentioned that earlier, but, you know, a lot of times make sure there isn't a whole bulk load of chemical waiting and it's a year's worth of bulk load of chemical before they can switch to your program. Understand what, what the current vendor or what the pro current program has. But then once you've had a successful trial period, present that to the customer. Well, Kevin, let me, let me back you up for a second. What is your advice if you found just so much of a better solution than what their current vendor is providing, but yet their current vendor has stockpiled them with a huge amount of inventory? Is, is that opportunity over? Or in your experience, do you, what would you say to that customer? Well, I, what I would say to that customer is really depends on how much of, how much of, a, of a, what's the word I'm looking for? of a problem they're having, what kind of fees are they paying right now based on the, the program they have in place? If they're paying $1,000 a day in fines and you can take that $1,000 a day away, that pays for a heck of a lot of chemical pretty darn quickly. So it really depends on how much you are able to save them and say, look, you know, we can save you $1,000 a day. You can bleed that chemical in maybe a gallon or two a, a day just to get rid of it, but think of the amount of money you're going to save. So it really boils down there, Trace, to do the math, to sit down and say, if you switch to my program, here's how much money you can save, even though you have this amount of chemical in place. So that, that's, that's kind of, it gets a little dicey, but if you've, if you've got a program that does so much better, then by gosh, you can really sell that. Another key, and a, a lot of things come to me after I think about it, a lot of times if you have, you know, you're going after a competitor, you're going to say to the customer, hey, please don't order any more chemical until our trial is over or, or until we've proved it. Because a lot of times, and some of the larger guys were notorious for this, the minute they heard something was going on, they would fill up the bulk tanks or fill up the warehouse with their product, and then it made it difficult for the customer to switch. So, you know, be aware of that going in. But if you can save them, if, if they're not meeting discharge limits on a metal or something, then, you know, you 
typically can uh, force their hand to say, hey, if we continue with this program we're using right now, we're losing a lot of money. So, Kevin, let me ask you this. So you're now doing the field trial. You've talked with a customer. They like you. But, of course, the, the incumbent vendor, they want to stay. And while you're doing your field trial and over however many days, they get wind of what you're doing. And now they try to duplicate your program. How do you handle that? Well, that just really comes to customer relations, you know, and I've seen people, I've seen people do that. I had that happen to me in an account up in Pennsylvania where I came in and, and this was more on a defomer where I basically cut the defomer from 600 parts per million to 12. And lo and behold, the incumbent came in and switched their chemical chemistry to mine. It, it made me mad. I mean, and, and you just wish it doesn't happen, but it does happen. I wish there was a, a you know, a magic wand that I could say, here's how it happens. But it just really boils down to the, the pre-selling is really what it boils down to, saying, hey, if I'm able to switch and, and improve this operation, improve this situation, will you go with my chemistry and, you know, go with my program? You know, for the most part, I think people are, 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 are honest, but you are going to get those ones that are going to say, sure, we'll change. And then the minute you've solved the problem, they go with their vendor. I mean, I, I wish I could say it doesn't happen, but it does. And, you know, all you can do is just is try to make sure up front, at least this is mine. I'm sure there are people that are, are much better salespeople than I am, have better ways of doing it. But making sure up front you come to that agreement as opposed to when it's over. It's better to have it up front than when it's over. Yeah. Always, always talk about your expectations before you get started in the process. I love that advice. Exactly. And, and Kevin, I got to tell you, I had a customer that it wasn't wastewater. It was just regular water treatment. And I found several issues. And uh, it was when I was relatively new. And I, of course, wanted to boast all the issues that I found. And they simply just gave that to their current supplier. And I asked the gentleman, I said, well, you know, I don't think that's very fair, but the question I have for you is, what are you going to do when the next problem comes up? And the gentleman looked me right in the eye and said, I guess I'll get you to come back and give us another free survey. <laughs> yeah. So I changed how I did things from that point. And I guess that's my point. You have to learn from the results that you get. Uh, I totally agree that most people out there are honest. But we have to protect ourselves for the very least that we don't have a lot of time to give away because there are customers that want us to help them and they'll pay us to do that. So we just have to make sure that we're doing things like setting expectations and setting soft closes and closing deals before we actually burn up more of our time that we'll never get back. Sure. I mean, you know, the thing and one of the earlier discussions that I saw in some questions was, you know, what's the difference between wastewater and boiler cooling water? Well, the biggest difference, in my opinion, is in wastewater, we can show relatively quickly compared to boiler cooling water on what our program has is able to do. But it doesn't change the way we sell. As water treatment professionals, we have to make sure that we come to an agreement prior. You know, if we're selling a cooling system, we're going to keep biological control under control. Whatever these, these parameters are, it's the same for wastewater as it is for boiler cooling water or processed water. Don't think of it any differently. The only thing that's different is in wastewater, we typically can show our results more quickly because we, it, it's more of a visual art, for lack of a way to put it. You can see your app. You can see your results relatively quickly. 
you know, in a, in a cooling system, if you start seeing pressures going up across the heat exchanger, you know hey, you have a problem. Or you're seeing, you know, in a boiler, starting to see fuel consumption go up, you know you have a problem. Um, but that takes a little longer. In wastewater, it's pretty quick. So that's really the only difference. You still need the same basic agreements going in on a wastewater treatment plant that you need on a, uh, on a boiler cooling water application. That's a great way to look at that. Yeah, there's really, there's really no difference. I mean, that's, to me, that's, it's selling 101, getting agreements from the customer and then, and then meeting or exceeding those agreements. Yeah. Well, Kevin, let's draw from your over 40 years of wastewater experience. So you've taken us through the process where we now have a solution. We're happy with it. The customer's happy with it. And then for some reason, something happens and it stops working. What are some of the most common things that you've experienced that we can learn from so maybe we can stop from happening on our programs? Well, the most common, and I'm laughing, the most common never happens, but it's the most common that happens. And that most common thing is somebody changes something in the plant, but they didn't change it. No, nobody ever does that. Nobody ever does that. I mean, so, so that's the most common. Nobody's ever does that. Nobody ever changes anything in a plant. I'm sitting there with a big grin on my face laughing, but that tends to be the most common. And again, my background is very heavily in oils and, and removing oils and things along this line. And, and they'll change the surfactant. They won't even think about it. And that surfactant will then screw up the ability for any polymer to break an emulsion and remove the oil. But that's, I mean, it doesn't happen all the time, but that's really is the most common. The other, the other more common is where, you know, maybe there's sampling problems. Maybe, you know, discharge limits change and you're unaware of that. You know, you do get, you know, I know there was some discussion about operator sabotage, but, you know, that I've, I've seen that happen, but so rarely, especially once you get in and you work with those guys. Um, but the, really the biggest problem I've seen or biggest change is a change in the system that you're not notified about. Nobody tells you about it. Well, we just put on a new, a new, a new line. We just changed from product A to product Z and you're not told in advance. Um, that's typically the biggest problem that I've seen is something changed in the plant. But it, and it, takes, it takes so long to figure out that something has changed. I, I think we're getting better as, a, as an industry on, on when things do change, that we are notified, but it's still not great. So that would be, that's my biggest uh, observation on what causes programs to fail or not become as effective. Kevin, when you were on the show for Industrial Water Week, you mentioned that a lot of times during ship changes, somebody might early make up a tank or they might late make up a tank. And now we don't have that constant uh, dilution of the mixture going into the plant. What are some things that we could do to help with that? Well, I think it does come back to operator training. Um, making sure that you're, they're trained properly, and tell them why. I mean, a lot of times we just say, hey, put it in when it gets to this level. Okay, well, what happens if you put it in too soon? What happens if you put it in too late? Here's why. Here's why it has to go in at this specific time. And explain to them, here's why. And then the other comment, a lot of times, you know, they just don't understand. And if you take time to explain and train them and say, here's why, and, and you know, look, if it does go down too low or you have to add it earlier, 
let me know you've done it so we understand what's going on. I get it. You know, you have to get to a recital for your daughter, so you got to make sure you leave at exactly five o'clock. I get it. And so, you know, you, you can't you can't be putting it in right at five o'clock. I need to be out the door. So if you explain to them why this is important, I think that's really kind of a key to making sure that they understand why they're doing what they're doing. Too often we just tell them, do this, do this, do this. I think that people, at least nowadays, they want to know why. Why am I doing this? What are the ramifications if I do it differently than if I, than, than if I do it the way you say it, you know? And, and I think that's really a key is, is operator training, letting them know exactly why you're doing what you're doing. Um, so that, that's how I would answer that. And I've had real good success with explaining to folks, you know, in the plants, you know, when I was doing the service, which has been a while, but that's what I used to always do. I'd go in and sit down and talk with them. Maybe not, maybe not make it a formal training, but just sit down and talk to them and say, hey, I know sometimes, you, you know, you're late on, on turning this up or turning this down. Here's why it's important to do it. And if you can't get to it, I understand, but let me know, you know, so we, we know what, why there was a problem at this particular point in time. Have you ever created a mixed chart based on the graduations of the mixed tank? And if they have so many gallons left, then this is what you need to add? Or does that overcomplicate the situation? I, I, you know, it, I, I've never, I, I've done it more, Trace, when we've done batch treatments where we've, we've had a batch that we needed to treat and added the chemical according there. Um, not so much in making on makedown systems. I mean, a lot of times now the customers have the automated makedown systems. It's not as Neanderthal as it was when I was in the field. I have done that, but more along the lines of, you know, you're treating a batch of 1,000 gallons, here's how much you put in. If the batch is only 800, here's how much you put in. I've done more along that line where we've said, here's how much chemistry you need to put in. Um, as far as as far as dilutions, I get a little worried on doing that because, you know, if you think about emulsion polymers, you really need to be in a certain range. If you start getting over or under that range, especially over, I, I did a cartoon one time where I where I a guy was making a polymer makedown in a batch tank, and instead of making a one percent solution, he made a ten percent, and it was like this monster coming out of the tank you know, because it turns into a gel. So I, I was all... It's just a decimal off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah try to make it a 10% of an emulsion. Uh, you, you'd be more than a decimal off. But I, I can see how you could do that. Um, I've never really had an opportunity, need to do that. My need has been more for treatment of a batch tank. Um, a lot of times, you know, when you're talking oils, they'll do batch tanks and they won't always be, a th whatever the number is, 1,000 gallons. Sometimes they may be light, sometimes they may, may be heavy. So I would do, you know, calculations based on that. You know, here's, you add a gallon to 1,000 and three-quarters of a gallon to 750, whatever the case may be. Any advice you have for that one plant that just can't keep an operator and you're constantly training people, are there things that obviously you can't help their HR issues? That's probably the real problem here. But is there anything that you can do to help since you know you're going to have to train somebody else because you've trained 10 other people to make that process a little bit more efficient and more effective for you? Well, the one thing I would think, and this is just kind of just thinking off the top of my head, is potentially do it like, you know, we do webinars periodically here at Brentag and record a webinar and have it recorded that if they do get new people, at least the first step that they could see would be the webinar that you've done on how to 
you know, what, what are some of the key points for the operator? And so there, the original training could be done through a webinar series and then get in and, and then follow up with on-site. So that's something that I would, I would think could, could work very nicely, would be to do a basic little webinar training of the plant, walk the operator through, here's the importance of coagulation, here's the importance of flocculation, specifically around their facility. That might be, and then the, the customer could have that readily available on YouTube that they could set the, the guy down, the person down on their first day or second day, whatever the case may be, and walk them through that. But then come in and follow up and make sure you answer any questions they have. But I, I think that would be a way of doing it. I mean, we used to, you know, have the old PowerPoint ones that we'd leave with the operator. But I think nowadays, you know, a recorded one would be fantastic. And I hear those new digital cameras actually take video. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Uh, no, listen, I, 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 I think that's fun. I, I, you know what? I, I really enjoy, you know, it, you know, being, being. I don't want to say being. I guess being older and you know making comments like that and just laughing. And I'm sure that I laughed at some of the guys that taught me years ago. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, it, you know, it, it, it's all in what you remember and what you do, and you know. But uh, no, I think I do think it's funny when I made made the comment about the digital camera. But uh, I remember my very first digital camera was when I was with Calgon, and it was a 1.8 megapixel digital camera. I'm, I, I do a lot of photography. The camera that I have right now, if the car that was in my original camera wouldn't even put one picture on that card. <laughs> I mean, that's just mind-boggling to me. I could not get one picture on the card that came with my first digital camera. So that, and that was back when I was, when I was training manager at Calgon. So... It's amazing how far it's come. Kevin, let me ask, what has been the funniest thing in wastewater that you have ever seen? Well, the funniest thing in wastewater is the one I said, there, there's been one account in my entire career that is different than any account I was ever in. And it was at, it was at, a, it was at a railroad in, North, in Roanoke, Virginia. I get called there, and they had put a brand new plant in. And I, I think I was with Triolite or Dearborn. I can't remember who I was. I might have been Dearborn. So I get down, get down to the plant. I'm a, I'm a, a, a model railroader, so model railroad enthusiast. And I get down and I get there and walk into the plant and there are eight or 10 open pit uh, sand filters, right? And five on each side. I'm pretty sure it was five. Five on each side and a conveyor belt that goes from one down the middle, from one to the, to the other end a conveyor belt, right? And they were having problems with blinding of these sand filters, right? And they wanted to come up with a polymer for treating these sand filters, right? So I get down, and I'm looking at this. That, that, I mean, there's, the pic, there's the Pittsburgh coming out of me. Don, I cannot say the word down. So anyways, I go down to this account. I go in there, and I'm looking, and they're putting, they're, they're putting water into each one of these top-fed sand filters. The water percolates down through. The oil gets stuck on the top. The water percolates down through and goes out to the you know, waste treatment or the sewer, wherever the case may be. And they wanted to make the polymers to be more effective in taking oil out. I go, how do you get the oil out of these things once they, you know, they, they fill up? They actually had their operators go down with shovels. This is how it was designed, Trace, with shovels. Shovel the oil off the top of the sand filters and stick it up on the belt that was running to remove the oil, all right? If you started on one end, the, there was an incline of the, I'm sitting here drawing with my finger, 
there was an incline of this conveyor belt down the center. By the time it got to the five, the two at the end, I made a joke. I said, you'd have to bring the Los Angeles Lakers in to put the sludge on the belt because the belt was like three feet over top of these guys' heads. <laughs> and, and I sat there and I, I just looked at this and I'm, I'm, I'm not an engineer. I'm saying, who designed this? I mean, it was the most bizarre thing I have ever seen in my life. To this day, it's still the one that stuck out. The most bizarre thing I've ever seen in my life. And, and, the, and these guys were getting just covered with oil because you could well imagine taking a, like a coal shovel, putting an oily, it's pretty liquidy, and trying to put it up over your head three feet and stick it onto a belt. Turns out that the guy that put the plant in knew he was getting fired, the engineer, and so he designed it that way just to make it a mess. Wow. And to this day, it, to this day, it is still, it is still the funniest thing, most bizarre thing I've ever seen in a wastewater treatment plant. <laughs> and I, 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 it's so much more fun when I can actually draw the picture of showing somebody how to do it. But that's literally how they did it. They, and I, they, I don't think the plant lasted about, but three months. They, they, they went back to the old plant and put a new one in. We couldn't help them do anything. What are you going to do? You couldn't help them do anything. But yeah, that higher, it, taller people. Uh, well, that was my point: was get the Lakers to, to do the the number the the fifth uh, fifth uh, 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 sand filters. But that's what they did. They pumped the water in. The water would percolate down through. The oil would step on the top, and the goal was to go in and then scrape it off and put it up onto this conveyor belt. But the end one, the fifth one, or the, the very last one, there was you know two on each side, and it came down the center was. Oh, Two feet over top. I'm six foot tall. It was two feet over my head. Wow! And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Yeah, still the. I won't say the name of the company, but it was in it was in Roanoke, Virginia, and uh, it was a railroad in Roanoke, Virginia. And still to this day, that is the one waste treatment plant that I've been in that I've never seen anything remotely close to the same. So when they said you'll you'll never see anything like this again in your career, and they they are to this day forty years let's say thirty five years later. They still are the only waste treatment plant that I've ever been in that I've never seen anything remotely close to that. That time they meant it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Kevin, you not only came on this week, you were on the week before. So somebody's just tuning in. They haven't heard this episode. They didn't hear last week's episode. What's the one thing you want to leave the Scaling Up Nation with? Well, from a wastewater standpoint for anybody, and we're really focusing this on new people, is really know what you have a plan when you go to the waste treatment plant. Understand what you're trying to remove, what you're trying, how you're trying to improve the operation. Don't just jar test the jar test. Now, for young folks, a lot of times it's good just to go in and jar test to understand how to do it. Okay. But as you become more seasoned after you run two or three jar tests, make sure you have a plan. How am I going to improve what they're doing? What are their needs? And that's really the key. I mean, too often I've seen people run jar tests just to run jar tests. And that's the one thing I'd like to leave anybody that's new in wastewater. It's great to go out and run a few jar tests to get them under your belt. But once you feel comfortable, make sure you're doing it with a plan and with a purpose. So that's the one thing I would like to leave, you know, uh, the, the younger people in the wastewater industry. That is some good advice. Kevin, this has been a lot of fun. I'm not quite done with you yet. We did not do lightning round questions last week, so that means we are going to do them right now. Are you ready for the challenge? I am ready. 
All right. So my first question, if you could go back in time and visit yourself on your first day as a wastewater treatment professional, what advice would you give yourself? Well, what the advice I would give myself, and I'm, and I'm really proud of this right now, is understand all aspects of our market. Um, when I started, I started in wastewater. But then when I went to Calgon, I got to understand boiler cooling water and process water. I think that if I knew then what I know now, I would have started understanding function of scale, function of corrosion, function of biological control back when I started in wastewater. I think as wastewater professionals and as we see water reuse, water recycle becoming more and more and more prevalent and more needed, I think that that is the piece of advice that I would have given myself 40 years ago. Get to understand everything. And so that would be the advice I would give new people to now. Understand boiler cooling water, process water, and wastewater. Look at it all as water treatment. Great advice. What are the last three books that you've read? Well, I'm actually reading a book right now on the Indianapolis. Um, it's on the history of the Indianapolis. And then, again, I'm an artist. My, my last three books have always been, I read a lot or look at a lot of books about art, um, looking at different artists, the way they've done things. I don't remember, I, I, I think that, well, I'm, I'm a big Van Gogh fan, so I think probably one of the last books would have been on Van Gogh. Um, and, and I, I'm a big Vermeer fan. I think the other book would have been Vermeer. So I, I do, I do, I, I read, but I also look at the pictures in a lot of art books. So those would be my three, my three answers. Kevin, what are some of your favorite wastewater treatment resource books? Well, back to really just the internet. Um, I, 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 I really don't have any real AWT resource books. We have a, um, a manual online through the AWT that's pretty good. Um, we're, I'm, hopefully we can maybe redo that, but I, that one's a tough one, Trace, because I really don't have, I think my resources tend to be internet and then friends within the industry that I call and ask questions to. So I, that's the way I would answer that. I don't really have any really good wastewater books that I would recommend. Okay, fair enough. So here's the one we're going to have some fun with, because I know some stuff about you. So if someone plays you in a movie, and we know it's just a matter of time before that happens... Who would it be that plays Kevin Cope in that movie? Okay. I know everybody that knows me is waiting for this answer. So, so I, the, my, 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 my answer would be, I would say Michael Keaton because he's a Pittsburgher. Okay. But, but, but this is really a big, big uh, caveat here. Sharon Stone has to be in the movie because a lot of my friends know this, that I was actually on a date in college with Sharon Stone. So, yes, the Sharon Stone in, uh, in Basic Instinct. I went to college with Sharon. Um, now, that said, I was on a double date with Sharon. She was dating a fraternity brother of mine. But uh, we went on a date together. She rode in the backseat of my Pinto station wagon. And, uh, and she would not remember me. I, she, was a, she was a, excuse me, I think a sophomore when I was a junior. I, don't, I know she didn't finish school. We went to Edinburgh State College in Edinburgh, Pennsylvania. But somehow Sharon Stone would have to be in that movie to make it truly a Kevin Cope movie. So my answer would be Michael Keaton, but Sharon Stone would have to be in the movie somewhere or sometime. So. Now, you guys didn't have Boiled Rabbit on this date, did you? Boiled Rabbit? Oh, is that from that Space? That was in the movie. That was supposed oh, I, to be I, funny. I, I didn't remember that. I didn't remember that. I did. It's been so long since I've seen that movie. But yeah, it's just, uh, it's just funny because I, there was a picture taken of me 
and I, I was not dating my wife at the time. My wife had not got to college at that point, but it was uh, me and a young lady named Carol, and then Sharon and Pete, and there was a picture of the four of us standing. It, we went to a, I was in a fraternity, went to another fraternity uh, down in Cambridge Springs, and there was a stairway when you walked in, and everybody that came in, they took pictures of us. And there's a picture somewhere out there of me and Carol and Sharon and Pete, but I'll be darned if I can find it. But yeah, but uh, yeah, so I was, I was on a double date with, with Sharon Stone. That's my, my Hollywood claim to fame. I'll get my team to comb the internet and we'll see if we can put that up on the show notes page. <laughs> Trust me, there's been a lot of people combing the internet trying to find that picture. All right. And thanks for not knowing about the boiled rabbit scene. Now I just seem mean towards sorry, rabbits. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. All right, that. my final question for you. So you now have the ability to talk to anybody throughout history. Who would it be with and why? Well, you know, I, I listened to Jim, and this was my answer before I listened to Jim Lukadich's uh, thing, would be my mom and my dad. Um, they've been going for about 30 years, and it would just be great for them to hear what their kids have done, their their grandchildren. And, you know, just that would be my, that would be my answer. I'd just... I just uh, would love to sit down with them one time and say, "Here's what the, your your grandchildren have done," and I just think it would be great. And that would be that would be would be be my answer. It's a good answer, and I can't have a conversation with my parents either. So, Scaling Up Nation, if you have that opportunity to talk with the people that made you, take advantage of that opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, All right. I, I don't know where that came from. That was just a little public service announcement. Kevin, this has been so much fun. You are a master of taking the complex and explaining it simply so everybody can get engaged and everybody can visualize what you are describing. As I mentioned in the last episode, I'm definitely ripping off a lot of the techniques that <laughs> you use to describe things because it's so simple and everybody can visualize it. I want to thank you for coming on Scaling Up, and I want to thank you for educating the Scaling Up Nation. It's been my pleasure, and, and as you can tell, I really enjoy the water treatment industry, and any help I can give anybody, that's, uh, that's what I love doing. So thank you again. Thanks for having me. Nation, I know that that did not disappoint in any way, shape, or form. And I know a lot of you out there have written in and you want to get into wastewater. You're maybe into cooling towers and boilers and closed loops, or maybe you're treating some other type of water, and there's also a wastewater opportunity there for you. Well, now I hope you have a common frame of reference on what wastewater is and what the professional's job is who's running that program when it's all said and done in that wastewater plant. This is probably one of those interviews that you are going to listen to again. And folks, if you have not signed up for an AWT technical training, you need to do this because we are now offering wastewater every year and Kevin is one of the speakers. So in addition to Kevin painting those awesome pictures in your mind, you know, he's actually a painter too. I wonder if there's some sort of metaphor there. Anyway, I digress. So 
he can put you there at the equipment and then he's also got pictures in his slide deck. So if you've never seen a particular piece of equipment before, it's right there looking at you, of course, with his fantastic narration. So I hope that you put on your calendar to attend the AWT Technical Training Seminars. So go to awt.org. You can find out when those are going to be. Of course, I will be there, hopefully at each and every AWT seminar because I enjoy doing that and bringing my information to you guys as well. Folks, I hope that you use today to make whatever you're doing 1% better. If you can just get 1% better each and every day, imagine where you're going to be at the end of a week, at the end of a month, at the end of a year, but you have to pay attention to that. What are you going to do today that was better than you did yesterday? And again, when you can hold yourself accountable to somebody else, you're going to make sure that you get it done. How many of us decided that we were going to work out each and every morning in the new year and probably January 2nd, we hit that snooze and we did not keep that commitment to ourselves. Commitments we make to ourselves are the hardest commitments to keep. So tell somebody else about them and make sure you're holding each other accountable. Folks, thanks so much for listening to Scaling Up H2O, and I'll talk to you next week. 